You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Episode 35, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to the Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 35 of The Paradox. Today, we're going to be talking about emergency rooms. Specifically, we're going to be talking about freestanding, full-price transparency emergency rooms. Yes, they in fact do exist. They are somewhat common in the south-central United States, and I guess that's how I describe Texas and uh, Oklahoma. But we're going to be talking with Dr. Christian Rice, who is a managing partner of Nutex and Premier, that's with E-R at the end, sort of a clever plan words, which runs micro-hospitals. They are either single specialty, such as the case of the emergency services, and sometimes they are freestanding micro-hospitals where they can provide other services uh, through licensing. One of the tricky things with healthcare, and especially when it comes to our states, is that we all have different state laws. And so this is a very good way because you can experiment with laws that work and regulations. Uh, It also makes it tricky for trying to have systems that can be compatible with different states, for instance, even neighboring states. So you might have something that works in Ohio, but not Michigan, or vice versa. And as regular listeners of the show would know, we've definitely looked for people who have gotten solutions in various aspects of medicine and Emergency healthcare, or emergency rooms, is always maligned as the place where people don't pay, where the payer mix is terrible, both of which are true, but also that because of the problem with this, that hospitals jack up the rates, there's an unknown amount of expense that's going to be incurred by the patient when they go through the system, and if they're not insured, it can be a crippling debt that they come out with, and then people don't pay, collections are involved, and things can get kind of messy. And as I found with most of these innovators or disruptors of markets, they are more than welcome to have other people contact them. And Dr. Rice is also uh, one of those people. So the information will be on the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 035. Always free to contact him if you're interested in what he's doing, if you want to have a similar idea of your own, or you just want to find those services within your state. 
As mentioned in the introduction, you can also go to patreon.com slash the paradox and you can support the show by becoming a patron of the show. Uh, as an unsolicited advertisement for one of my uh, friends, one of the podcasts I've really enjoyed is called the American Revolution Podcast, which is not in any way related to medicine, but it's hosted by Michael Troy. And I was fortunate to become his first patron as he just opened his own Patreon site at American Revolution Podcast. And it's a great in-depth 20 minutes at a time segments into American revolutionary history. He begins in the 1600s, 1500s, almost the founding of the country, and then brings you right up to the start of the war and then through various aspects of the war. I believe I'm in episode 70 or so at this point, the taping of this podcast. And I think he's still in 1775. So that gives you any idea of the, the in-depth nature of the, of the podcast. But it is a fantastic way of learning a lot of nuanced details and things I think I find very interesting. If you like American history, if you like the revolutionary era, I would highly recommend that podcast. And I'd recommend you also be a patron of his show. I am. And so that's why I think Patreon is a great opportunity for you to lend support. And it's not oftentimes tons of money, but it's enough that provides enough to cover the, the expense of the podcast. And if anything, it provides moral encouragement to the to the creators of the products that you enjoy every day for free. So please subscribe to my show if you have not already, because it's free. And same thing with Michael Troy's American Revolutionary, I'm sorry, American Revolution podcast. But without further ado, Dr. Christian Rice with the Micro ER Hospitals. Enjoy. Well, hello, I'm here with Dr. Christian Rice, who's the manager partner and founder of a free, five freestanding ERs in Texas through Physicians Premier, and that's with an ER, kind of. Uh, and he's two ER micro hospitals through New Tex Health. He's an ER physician. He did his residency at Texas A&M in emergency medicine in Corpus Christi. His wife is an interventional cardiologist, so there's no shortage of paper they've accumulated between the two of them. And today we're going to discuss his new venture, which is opening in Oklahoma City. So, Dr. Rice, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thank you, Eric. I appreciate uh, your time, and thanks for uh, inviting me. Well, one of the uh, the purposes of the show is to uh, help physicians recognize uh, problems, and you know, my, half my crowd crowd I would say is probably physicians. The other half are the lay public or non healthcare affiliated people, and so it's a way of uh, getting deeper into the issues with physicians and sort of what they're up to, and then. That allows the, the lay public to know what's going on. And a lot of these things obviously affect us because we all use uh, medical you know, services at some point in our life, sometimes more than others. And, and uh, so we look for pe- physicians coming up with solutions and the problems. And sometimes we have more problems than solutions. And, uh, but today, we're going to talk about what you're up to. And I, was, I saw your video with Dr. Keith Smith, who was on a previous episode, uh, where he has a freestanding surgical center that's owned by physicians and it's run with 100% complete price transparency that is outside the third-party system. So it is very innovative in the sense that it, it is outside of the traditional sort of healthcare system. Um, yours is a little bit different, but why don't you talk about what's, what you're doing with the ERs? Because, you know, whenever, whenever you hear people talk about healthcare who are, you know, the pundits or the experts, they're always saying, well, we got to do whatever we can to keep people out of the ER because it's absolutely the most expensive place to, you know, to receive your medical care. So what are you doing to try and change that? Uh, yeah. So, so our model is a kind of a physician owned, um, more efficient, uh, you know, um, 
model of the emergency room. And so we specialize in the emergency room and uh, we don't have as much of the bureaucracy and overhead. And so it allows us to kind of keep our prices down. And so my group lately, we've been um, entering the, the price kind of transparency market or the cash uh, prompt pay market, which kind of couples with uh, high deductible plans, which are becoming more and more common. Um, mm-hmm. And um, we, we also do quite a bit of uh, the third party that you were, uh, of, of contracts that you were just speaking about. Um, so sure. I, I'm one of the managing partners of five of them in Texas. Um, each one's individually owned, has different positions. Um, each one chooses to um, different levels of price transparency and pricing. And so it's kind of interesting that each, each one um, kind of adapts to the market and uh and can offer different solutions and often um you know just setting the prices in advance and being transparent about it is one of the solutions that uh, customers are looking for and patients yeah it's it's actually stunning that one could say it's innovative innovative that you actually post your prices (laughs) that's just about any other business or any sort of transaction we have that wouldn't be the you know People are like, of course, yeah. why would I not know how much something costs, right? Yeah, that's... Um, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, that's kind of that's kind of sad that that that, uh, that posting your prices is, uh, is a huge change and deal. But unfortunately, I, I think that's uh, much of the medicine or healthcare market as a whole. But, um, you, I, you know, emergency medicine is probably one of the least transparent fields of medicine. And uh, it's been slow to catch up. And so I think there's a lot of uh, patients and, um, and, and customers seeking, and employees and employers seeking this solution, uh, often because of the nature of emergency medicine. Um, you know, prices are kind of, uh, there's not much question about them, I'll put it that way. And, uh, right. and so absolutely, this, uh, this changes that. Well, it's, it's tricky, right? Because I mean, <laughs> We hear the sounds of life all around us. Um, What's real interesting is that when it comes to the emergency room, uh, I mean, you are obviously you're captive when you're going in. You're not no no one's checking the prices as they're walking the door. Generally speaking, if it's truly an emergency, right? I mean, obviously people are using emergency services who are not you know critically ill where they're going to die, but some are, Um, and so that makes it a little bit different. So the the problem with price transparency in the ER has always been one that. Most ERs are are in large hospitals, and the ER is a way of funneling patients into the hospital. Outside of, and this would be different than an urgent care clinic. And also, when you're in the ER, you're you encounter so many specialists, depending on what's going on, and so it becomes really convoluted for a patient to try and figure out, you know, how much the charges are, where that's coming from. Is it from you know the urologist to stop by, or the the infectious disease person, or whatever? And now maybe that's just my experience with the with I'm in a large tertiary care hospital. Uh, before that, I was at a university hospital, which again is tertiary care. So how is how are your ER host, your ER in this freestanding ER hospital? How is it different than sort of the traditional ER that most people have probably experienced? Yeah, um, you know our whole experience is kind of centered around that patient experience uh, or that that um, the emergency service or the emergency um, kind of. Uh, uh, evaluation. Um, we we don't have the tertiary capacity, but what I do find is that most patients actually don't that that come to the emergency rooms I've been 
part of in the past don't don't necessarily need an immediate consultant or um, you know um, a specialist. I, I sure wish I could get more specialists to come to the ER uh, that easily, but um, but for the most part, um, I, they're, they're being you know they're getting an emergency evaluation and then they're getting some ancillary services. Um, and, and what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, most patients can't really wait when they're having price transparency. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, they can't really wait when they have an emergency and kind of choose the better price. And that's true for, for, for a, a large amount of the, the visits, but there's, there's kind of the, the in-between that, you know, can't access their, their primary doctor, they can't access uh, an urgent care, it's the middle of the night. And so those actually, those, th that category of patient um, actually is looking for uh, like a more cost-effective solution. So right now you're, so you're opening up the Oklahoma ER hospital, which is okerhospital.com. It's definitely different because it, it it's, you've got obviously traditional emergency rooms in Oklahoma city. So you're competing against those, your prices are online. And so I think I, when I looked at your website, you said they hadn't quite been posted yet. The, the, I think I, I uh, connected with you before you had a chance to fully complete the, the website. And that's perhaps by the time it's, this is published or within a week or so, by the time people have listened to it, it'll be uh, published. But your prices that you sent me were seemed re seemed pretty inexpensive 250 for a sort of a standard, basic evaluation at the ER. How does that compare to the local ERs in, in Oklahoma city that they'd be the com direct competitors? Oh, that's for, it'd be hard pressed to find a, an ER that you could um, enter, get triage and an evaluation and um, you know, and, and go through the whole process at that price. And so it's, it's, you know, substantially cheaper. All, often the prices we're posting are, um, you know, twenty percent of what uh, charge sheet would be, and we, we, I think we both know that the charge sheet we see or the prices we see charge for services, those those are really kind of uh, made up numbers. They're not tied to any kind right. of reference. Um, that being said, um, I would say that you know, even adjusted rates, the standard person with insurance, or even Medicare, Medicaid, that's substantially cheaper than than what it would cost uh for that visit um no, so so and and then you know our max price is um for for everything like if we have a very sick patient that's septic needs iv fluids and pressors and and all these other uh you know critical medications it, it's a little above uh, 2000 or, and, and that that's pretty spectacular. So any, any of your uh, listeners who have ever had like a, you know, a kidney stone in, in an emergency room, even with great insurance, they're, they're often left with an out of pocket expense. That's way more than that. So, um, right. they are high, they are definitely high, uh, you, you know, but they're, um, substantially cheaper than, than what, what the market is. And that's in every market I've been in. Right. I mean, the pricing course is relative, right? Like, obviously, it's more, it's more, well, it's less expensive to go to your primary care physician and have that treated at three in the afternoon. But if, but when that's not an option, then your, your, your pricing is obviously accordant with what the ER prices are. Um, and then what's it, what I found interesting is it, I got the impression that there weren't, there were not mid-level seeing patients. These are just physicians who are, who are doing all the treatment and the, 
and all the the care in these hospitals is that is that true yeah, yeah that that's true that's one of our concepts is that um you know it is expensive for emergency care it doesn't matter where you go and uh for that expense or as much you know value as possible uh or quality as possible so our model um you know every physician who works at our facility is an owner of the facility in some capacity and uh so all our shifts are filled by the physician owners. And so that, that's something that um, we work well with mid-level providers. Um, you know, they often will refer into our facilities um, and we have the time to kind of uh, communicate with them. And, 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 uh, but at our facility, it is correct. We, we only, um, we are, our partners are only emergency physicians and actually we pretty much board certified emergency physicians. So that, that's something that kind of sets us apart as far as quality. So that's interesting. So, so when you're see, when you're seeking patients, when you enter these new markets, I mean, obviously you're one in Oklahoma city is brand new, but, and, and you still take third party payers. So for patient, for, for listeners who may not be aware, there's where we're talking about sort of the, not phony rates, but sort of the, the charge sheet or the rack rates that that are posted. So like if you go to a hotel and you look at the door, there's a, you know, a room rate and it's like a thousand dollars or something and no one ever would pay, you know, that anywhere close to that uh, unless the Super Bowl happened to be held that day. Right. Or something. Um, and so what's often is billed is a thousand dollars. The insurance company pays a thousand. They say, Hey, look, we saved you 60% and it's only if it was only a $400 charge and then you're a hundred dollar copay and then you owe us, you know, whatever towards the deductible. And so, because no one really pays that thousand dollars or there, you've all negotiated with every single insurance company or Medicare, Medicaid have their set prices based on the coding and you know, how much they reimburse depending where you live and stuff. Um, so, but the difference with what you're saying is that you have a price and it doesn't matter if you have insurance or not. That's the price that's paid, whether it's the insurance company or the patient. I, am I correct in that assumption there? That, that price that we're talking about is the option uh for any of the patients but we we typically for patients who have insurance and want to use their their full insurance benefit they can always go through their insurance and in those cases we default to as any emergency room you default to in network rates and so we're out of network okay. with those insurance carriers but it doesn't matter to the patient because for emergency care it's almost always it's, you know, it's not fair to say drive another five miles with your heart attack to that in-network hospital. <laughs> but, but, but some payers would like that, but, but it's not fair. So, um, you know, and for those patients, we find that our, our, our prices are cheaper. And one of the reasons why is because we, we kind of consolidate the billing. We have a, you know, an emergency room bill and a physician bill, but we don't have an independent lab bill or you know, an out-of-network lab bill or an out-of-network radiologist bill or, or some of the add-ons you'll see uh, now in, in some of the markets. And those are very painful because you'll hear, oh, you know, this hospital's in network and then you get there and the physician's not in network. And what I'm finding is a majority of emergency physicians are not in anybody's network. And that's kind of a, a sad truth really spoken. You know, it's like, oh, we're in network. Well, yeah, well, not the physician part, and they're gonna, you know, bill fully, um, and yeah. and so <laughs> at the end of the day, too, yeah. yeah, we're we're actually cheaper for those patients as well, um, and then we do some billing with third parties, uh, and we love that. I love, you know, my passions, you know, behind kind of 
industry industry and blue collar and you know that was my background growing up and uh if if i really like to do direct contracting with uh you know self-funded uh you know patients or self-funded plans and kind of offer them something that's tethered to a real price and not this chart sheet you just mentioned and more tethered to reference-based pricing. So some, you know, fraction of a Medicare or something like that. That's actually, they know before they go in, this is what we're paying. We're not paying that make-believe number in the sky that the hospital set up uh, as a, you know, as a game. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, I feel like, I feel like in the undercurrent of all of this is there is a, there's sort of an ideological sort of, been to this, right? So you've, you've looked for solutions for but it seems like you've got, um, that, that this is more than just, it, it's a business solution, but it's one that is, that you feel like this is probably should be run by physicians or directed by physicians. Is that kind of fair to assume that that's sort of, sort of underlying a little bit of what's going on? Yeah, for me personally, it certainly is. I mean, there's there's micro hospitals and emergency centers kind of throughout different markets and there's different models, but I'm passionate about the physician owned one. I, I, I firmly believe it can outcompete any other model. You, you basically have your group of physicians who are so vested to that facility and, and, the, and, and the patient's experience and their outcome and their follow up and that they get their medications and that they're compliant and, you know, that they have a great experience. And it's really hard to reproduce that when you have an emergency physician who's, you know, part of a staffing group or, you know, just another shift worker. And, uh, and, and I really, I've, I've worked in every single model. I'm pretty confident. Um, and, and this one is, is the one I'm most passionate about and it's flexible. I mean, we, the, the, you know, in Oklahoma, it's a full hospital license. And so we could technically do procedures and surgery. And if we wanted to expand some of our capacities, we can do, you know, semi-invasive procedures and we can uh, bring in additional physicians who want to partner with us for certain things um, and whatever the community needs. And we're kind of a flexible footprint. We have outpatient MRI and you know, outpatient uh, labs and uh, services. And those are very, aren't, you know, revenue generators, but they're really a good service. You know, we're, we have all those listed online too. You know, like right now we're doing, I don't know, any MRI, any MRI, any body part, 375. Well, that's way lower than whatever anybody's yeah. ever going to pay through their insurance or not. And so, you know, it's, a, I like it. It's disruptive and, um, and, and yes, the physician ownership uh, really, it's just amazing. It allows, um, you know, there's no bureaucracy. You can, if there's a problem, you can fix it the same day. You know, you just get your physician partners to vote and you're there. Uh, you know, there's, there's really, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of middlemen and there's not, um, uh, there's not, you know, some executive over your shoulders who's uh, demanding something about time or some metric that really isn't important for the patient in front of you, but it's just important to their numbers. And so to not have that really provides a lot of flexibility. Yeah, I feel like, um, especially when you look at the younger physicians coming, and this, and this is probably not fair to say because I'm talking to a younger physician, but um, I feel like there's a... <laughs> yeah. There, there tends to be, there's a perception at least that physicians want to go and there's, they're now when they're coming out of training and out of school, they're just as happy to be uh, employed, shift workers, go in and kind of just punch the clock and then leave. 
and you know, if you're just a sort of a cog and and it that feels you definitely have that more of that feel in ER, like you wouldn't. I'm an anesthesiologist, so it, it's like that in two, right? It's almost like shift work. You don't have right. your own patient panel, uh, like unlike my wife who's a pediatrician. But um, and this is like a different sort of model. I mean, do you do you think there are enough physicians around who feel as you do, uh, and I guess I'd, I'd say as me that that it's important to have physicians running businesses? And then, and it, as another question to follow up to that. Generally, physicians have been poor business people. <laughs> now, I know you have an MBA, but uh, you know the other argument is like, well, you can have physicians. Sure, they're invested, but they don't know what the heck they're doing. <laughs> I, I I do think physicians aren't taught the language of business, um, and and that's off often uh, it, it makes it hard to be in control and actually find the solution because there's a language that is in the middle of your you know system system that you really don't speak. And that's part of why I went back to get the MBA. And I'll agree with you. Physicians make really horrible business people. Uh, you know, just don't tell my wife that right now. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, but you, you want a quick story. When I was getting the MBA, they were making us do this exercise where they had you pick um, parameters for different facts, like how deep is the ocean? And they said, look, I need you to be right. 90% of the time, I'm giving you 10 facts, okay? Pick a range. Just pick a range and be right 90% of the time. Don't be too narrow and don't go zero to infinity. That's not fair. And the physicians are the lowest performing on that test. And, and engineers, any other executive. And the reason why is because physicians as a whole are very confident and they're not very um, forward thinking towards that risk. And uh, they're overconfident. You have to be confident. You can't go into surgery and say, oh, well, I, I think it's going to work out okay. I'm pretty sure that that's, you know, that uh, this is what we're going to take out. You, you just can't do that. And so it was kind of funny. I'm in the middle of the MBA and they're telling us this, they're going over that exercise. And sure enough, the physicians are like 30% and the you know, engineers 60% or something. I'm like, Oh gosh, I just invested in all these businesses. What was I doing? But, uh, <laughs> so you're, you're absolutely right though. Traditionally physicians are, um, you know, uh, poor, um, businessmen and, and really medicine separates us from us or, you know, the practice of, of medicine, you know, we're, we're always taught, you know, don't it's, it's kind of considered some in some aspects it's considered like the evil side right don't go over to that evil side uh but but that's detrimental to finding solutions um you know i would also say earlier your comment about well the coming out i agree it's lifestyle is so much more important for for doctors coming out now uh but i don't think there's as much ownership opportunities, uh, ownership of your patients, ownership of a private practice, over ownership of a pediatric practice or family practice. I mean, if you look at the way the fine healthcare has went, it's all went towards, you know, physician, a hospital or health system affiliated physicians. We've, we've basically been, you know, bought up, you know, my wife's a cardiologist and I think like five years ago or six years ago, 50% were still in some sort of independent practice. It's down to like 9% now. And, and, and because what has happened, you're a cardiologist and you can make a decision. You can do your private practice in a system where there's very little, um, where, where you have one arm tied behind your back. And what I mean by that is 
if you're an independent practice and you're not hospital affiliated, you can't charge a facility fee. You can't, you know, as soon as you join with that hospital, even if you're doing your practice away from the hospital in a different building, if it's a hospital affiliated building licensed under the hospital, they're charging Medicare and Medicaid a facility fee. So for my wife, you know, for like an EKG, she, if it, as soon as she became hospital affiliated, they get paid, you know, the EKG reimburses three times as much. So it's like, okay, well, you can read half the amount of EKGs and make more money. And, and, and that, that's the sad, you know, unfortunately, one of the sad big, um, you know, variables pushing uh, more and more, uh, you know, groups away from independence. And I think, you know, that independence is, is very, very important uh, in medicine. And so obviously, and, and that's why I have um, part of these projects right now. Right. Well, yeah, it's interesting that that we had the same in- instance in this town where the cardiologists ended up, they didn't move offices, that nothing changed except their their affiliation changed. It's om- But the reimbursement, because they are now affiliated with the hospital, their building became a hospital building, and suddenly the reimbursement goes up quite a bit. And actually it wasn't that so much as it had gone down so much because it was now considered outpatient and there was a separation with through CMS with the Medicare billing. And so hospitals weren't weren't the hospitals weren't penalized, I guess you'd say, whereas the uh, whereas the outpatient facilities were. Right. And so then there's your only choice is really to join the hospital. It's almost like the hospitals hospitals had a better lobbying uh, in DC than uh, than the physicians. Oh, for sure. I, I definitely <laughs> hospitals have a better lobbying. I mean, you look at uh, you look at the, what happened in the Affordable Care Act in 2010, and they backdoored a, um, you know, they basically prevented any new physician-owned hospitals from taking Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, so our facilities actually can't take Medicare and Medicaid because we're after 2010. And if we did, we'd be in a Stark Law violation. And that was just you know, the hospitals basically lobbied to remove that exception that has always been there. And and the reason why they did that is because they were tired of competing with more efficient, you know, hospitals. You you have, you have, spe- you know, you look at most economies and you, you, you get your large monopolies, but most of the time you get these very specialized, very small factories of, of efficient, you know, product. And, you know, so like, for instance, a heart hospital or an orthopedic hospital, um, you know, and those were just in a lot of markets and I've worked at some, I mean, there, it's just a letter, it's a high center of excellence and, you know, hospitals were saying, well, gosh, you're taking all the heart patients, you're taking all the right. patients. And so that was a huge lobbying effort. And, uh, yes, their lobby power creams ours. And, uh, that's unfortunate. We're, we're so separated and not together as a group, as physicians anymore, uh, it's kind of sad, but yeah, we, we, we get, we get ran over between the insurance companies and the hospital lobbies pretty hard. Yeah. Well, and I, I also find interesting when you talk about the entrepreneurial, uh, I don't know, spirit is, or at least the perception by new grads coming out that, well, you know, I'm, I'm more concerned with lifestyle than pay. And so I'm willing to give up 25% of my pay to be able to, to not have to deal with all the administrative hassle and the burden. And it's strange because, First of all, the people training them were primarily people who were, well, at least most of the physicians they would have encountered once in private practice who were those on, were sort of forced to be entrepreneurial in some sense, right? right. Whether they were any good at it or not. Uh, but they're placed in, increasingly into systems that where they are devalued as, a, as someone providing care, uh, either 
that they have significantly more training than say a PA or nurse practitioner, yet they their reimbursements, you know, from the from a billing standpoint, is no different. And so the hospitals and the systems don't value them as much, uh, except for by you know, but state licensing rules that say they have to be around or something like that. And they're and they're increasingly placed in systems which create force them to work in uh, you know see so many patients in and without much time in FaceTime, and overwhelmingly the number one reason people go into medicine is it's a calling to have that personal relationship with the patient, and that it's taken away from them. And so it's it's so it's so surprising because you you think you're giving it up to gain something, and you probably although you may think you're gaining lifestyle by hours you've sort of taken away the joy of the, of the work itself and, and the, and sort of why you went into medicine. And I, and I feel that it contributes to the burnout a lot. Um, so I, I think what you're doing is probably, probably important. And maybe at some point people realize that that's what the direction we need to move more in for also just for peace of mind reasons. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I felt like, uh, I, I went into emergency medicine for the lifestyle. I mean, I had my, first child in med school and next one in residency. And, you know, I was like, Oh, there goes a uh, orthopedic surgery, you know, those hours. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I found myself being a worker and being controlled, being replaceable, you know, um, just being, you know, um, a staffing, like a staffing company, having complete control and just being able to remove me from my position. You know, how can I advocate for a position? I mean, a patient, if, if I can be removed from the schedule because of some political battle with, you know, the specialists at the hospital or the, you know, some executive, and that's the position we were put in. And, and I know you probably can feel some of that you know, sympathy as anesthesiologist, you know, radiologist and, and, and pathologist, all, all, all these services that are contracted rather than um, historically part of the, you know, the, the hospital employee, uh, those, those, you know, I, I certainly felt it and I had a, a big drive. I, I experienced my first, ex- my first experience within the freestanding emergency center was like in 2013. And it was hard to go back. I started in academic medicine and, um, and I really enjoyed that. And, uh, it was very rewarding. And I, uh, but, um, as much as I enjoyed it, um, you know, it was hard. It was, you know, the hours were hard. The time was hard. Um, and then being in, you know, controlled and not being able to, you know, provide solutions that I felt were important. And it was, you know, patient care solutions. I get so much caught up in the business aspect. Sometimes, you know, you sound, you know, sound compassionate, but it was, you know, it it always centered around, you know, the patient in front of me. And so, yeah, yeah, it drove me to, to this. And as soon as I started experiencing, you know, physician ran centers that could offer a substantially better product at a cheaper price it just made sense and uh you know that's when i kind of decided hey i i this is what you know something i want to be part of um it's it's you know it's been great for me and my family and uh, you know at i got to the point where i couldn't speak the language i was like uh, the business language and so hence i went for a, a business degree and that's been helpful you know, now i can now i can speak the language it's like i have a translator now i guess or something <laughs> <laughs> do you um do you see yourself expanding more? So, one of the one of the problems, and I've uh, I talked to uh, one physician who was uh, trying to set up his own imaging center in North Carolina, and initially we had the same problem with certificate of need laws. Uh, so, it's their state laws that prevent this. 
I'm assuming there aren't these problems in Oklahoma or Texas. Do you see your, do you, are you just kind of uh, expanding regionally, you know, in that area or do you see this as something that you're going to franchise out to more states or do you need federal changes to, to really expand? Yeah. Um, the, you know, Oklahoma has some certificate of need laws. They're just not for medical surgical hospitals. Thankfully they're more for um, yeah. behavioral health and, and, and such. And, um, you know, I, uh, certificate of need laws, but uh, right now we are limited. I am limited in this model to the states that don't have a, or have an amenable certificate of need set of laws or, or don't have any CON laws. Um, you, you know, it, it's, that's such a shame that that law was, you know, the way it was started and repealed and the states that have all kept it on the books. And it just shows you when, what bureaucracy is, you know, or what it, yeah. And, and it's it's a shame because you have really healthy competition and you could have these outpatient imaging centers that save the patient money, the government money, everybody money, the employer, more money in the in the community, every everybody except for the for the hospital that has that monopoly on it would get more money. I mean, would save more money and, and you can't build them. And so um I am certainly passionate about helping uh, anybody who has interest in it. I really think that, you know, you could extend a similar model to specialty groups. And, and I, I get contacts a lot about groups that are interested in building, you know, a micro hospital specialized. Um, you know, the problem is you can't take Medicare and Medicaid. You, we have one hand tied behind our back still. Uh, but I'll get, I'll get, you know, uh, emails from, you know, Ohio or Pennsylvania, there, there's a lot of states that are uh, where you can do this model. And uh, I'm certainly interested in it. But, you know, at the same time, the, the hospital systems are, are realizing, wow, emergency care is really profitable. We'll build, you know, they're building and, in, in, you know, these expansions in every metro. And, and so the micro hospital is certainly the fad of medicine right now for, for hospitals because they can charge, you know, the 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 same emergency cert for the same emergency services which is a huge profit center for hospitals emergency services and surgery and so they can build all that on like one tenth the footprint and uh you know and so um the hospitals themselves and like hca has tons of you know emergency centers they'll build one hospital and put five emergency centers around it in a metro Unlike urgent cares, which funnel patients into their system at a cost-effective way, the, the, each center they own is super profitable, or each center can be super profitable. Um, so there's a lot of competition, but I, I think there's a lot of possibility as well. I mean, I, I'm huge uh, proponent of what you know Keith Smith's doing with just pure cash pricing. I'd love to do it. I can't uh, in emergency medicine for for multiple reasons. It's uh, you know, but but I'm definitely pivoting towards it and trying to get as much of that in our practice as we can, and really provide the best solution for that group and for the self-employed insured employers, which is like 50% of insurance now is you know uh, self uh, self-funded. And, uh, and and going back, I I, I think yes, I, I think there's um, I see myself helping others who have an interest in in taking con control of it. And, 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 you know, and, and building and finding a solution and finding a better product and better quality and not being hindered by, uh, you know, some restrictive state regulation that, uh, you know, in special interest. And that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. It's a, it's a real shame because, you know, you look at, you look at solution, it, the, I think the healthcare industry has got to be one of the most heavily regulated in the country. 
and you have you have everyone complaining about price, everybody, and yet we have a solution to this problem that that benefits everybody except the people who obviously have are the ones who make or uh, make all the money with it. Who eighty percent of which, by the way, are nonprofits, <laughs> who all have charitable donate foundations, and then are preventing anyone from from have, charging people less, including the poor. I just, you know, it's mind boggling. It's a real travesty. I mean, it's a real travesty that this happens in this this age, and and they will sing their their sad story about how they they've got to do everything. And you know, I think the example I always use is you know, General Motors doesn't make their own tires, right? Just because <laughs> that it. It's probably best that you ha- you can specialize in what you do really well. And hospitals do something's really great, but some things they just you know they don't do great, but they can charge a, a ton for the same. Thing, I agree. You know, so yeah, no, I agree. I mean, um, there's always going to be a need for tertiary care hospitals. You're always going to have those comorbid patients that really, really need it. But for the most part, healthcare can be delivered in more efficient models if if they would allow it. But you know, the hospitals are really forcing it through the hospital structure, the health that healthcare structure, which comes bloated with extra executives and management and facility fee. And you know, and and, and you're right, they cry. Oh, poor pitiful me. We need these exorbitant facility fees or we can't, you know, we can't stay open. Well, I mean, you, you still need tertiary hospitals, but what you don't need is five tertiary hospitals next to each other that all offer the same specialized transplant care or something, you know, and, and, um, you look at other nations that have, uh, you know, pros and cons to their system, you know, they have more regionalized healthcare systems where, you know, on the outskirts, you would have more efficient models like these. And on the, you would still have your tertiary care hospitals where patients would get sent into. Because what I find in my centers is that about 95% of what comes through the door, we can manage ourselves. And so our, our transfer rates in the low, low, low single digits. One thing we do too, is we put patients into observation. We save the patients full admissions, which the hospitals dislike as well. And, but the employers love it because we don't have to keep a patient for three days. And so we will basically turn a patient around as quickly as possible. The hospital's not forcing me to put them upstairs because there's no monkey on my back saying, well, they've been here for three hours. Uh, you know, and so I'll keep, you know, maybe a bad COPD or a heart failure for 18 hours and get them turned around to the point where I can get them back to, you know, outpatient, uh, an outpatient level. And that's amazing. Uh, and, and that's something else you can, you can do in this model. Um, you know, you talked about the federal restrictions or the state restrictions. One thing right now is, uh, there's a there's a bill Senator Cassidy in Louisiana is pushing called the Mer- Emergency Care Improvement Act, and what it would do is make a f- um, these freestanding emergency centers, which is what I do in Texas. There's no license like that in Oklahoma, so I can't do it. So it's forced some trend. It's it's forced some accommodation and some change. You know, in Oklahoma, we have the outpatient services, we have the full micro hospital license, but in Texas, we have the freestanding only the freestanding emergency center license. And and Cassidy's bill would basically make the federal government recognize these centers, and at a discount, the whole system would save money. Uh, they would be reimbursed at a fraction of what Medicare gets right now, like surgical centers did. You know, they were, they were right. same pathway. They were recognized by the state. They provide a great solution. And the federal government sat on the sideline for a decade and said, well, uh, you, you, you know, no, you're not, you're not, a, we're not going to reimburse you. You're not a hospital. You're, I don't know what you are, but you're nothing. 
January 1st, you know, and that's how freestanding emergency centers are right now in Texas. They exist. They provide great care. They're good access. Texas had the worst grade of emergency care in all the, you know, in the nation. They had an F, you know, if by all, you know, objective, you know, measures. And this, this has been a great solution. If you, if any of your listeners in Texas would know that the standard wait in the emergency rooms used to be three, four hours, but now you have 500 freestanding emergency centers in the, in the state and the care is substantially better. It's offloaded some of the, you know, overload from the main hospitals. You don't have a left without being seen rate, which it can be, you know, just super dangerous to patients. And so it's been amazing. And Cassidy's bill would recognize it. We would take a fraction of what Medicare is reimbursed at right now or what Medicare reimburses for CMS right now. Uh, it's great too, because what you're seeing is closure of big hospitals in, in rural areas. And it actually gives an incentive to go to rural settings because you get you get like 90% of what Medicare is at right now for rural and you only get 70% for metros and so it's just it would be great and they've done like some account like accounting on it and even with the increased ER utilization among Medicare and Medicaid patients which is climbing they would save the system taxpayers money they would save the government money you know, just, yeah. it, it, I'm just, uh, you know, it's in awe that it's not being supported. It's a great solution, but unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of uh, special interest against those types of great solutions in healthcare. Yeah, there, there, there's no special interest firm that is looking to uh, make less money, right? No, <laughs> <And> no. <laughs> so those are, those are hard, few and far between to find in Washington. So I have one other ER question. Um, my, my friends here who work in the ER here talk about this quite a bit, where, uh, I'm sure the problem's the same where where you are in the, the in uh, in the south, or I don't know, I guess what South Central you call it, uh, that there's a a paucity of beds for psychiatric patients, and so what they'll have is a patient comes into the ER who needs a psychiatric bed, they're schizophrenic and they're um, they had to take their medicines for a couple weeks or something, and they're stuck there for like days, mm-hmm. especially if they're a minor. Do you have that same problem in your uh, the freestanding ERs, or is that is that do you offload them somehow? We do, we do. We we have the same problem. We can hold them. Um, I've heard some innovative models of, of pure, like especially like in Houston, where that's a huge problem of like three day holds for the pediatric uh, yeah. uh, of just creating these kind of stabilization units hospital, you know, emergency hospital, basically. And, 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 and just that way, all the other centers can offload uh, into that facility as a as a as an efficient holding. Uh, we get a little bit of it Our you know, because we can't take Medicare and Medicaid, uh, you know, and, and call this the evilness of medicine, our our locations are, are pretty much in, in better demographics. Uh, we try, uh-huh. and, we, and so we don't get as much, but we certainly get tons of substance abuse What I find, and behavioral health. And what I find, though, is that we have a lot more time to sit down and try to find, um, I keep going back to the word solution, but we, we try to, a, a lot of times you can be a little more innovative when you just have a little bit of time to think and sit down and talk with the it's amazing. It's amazing what you can do in the ER when you when you have, you know, a little bit of time to do it. Um, and so we can often, you know, maybe I can get their warrantless detention removed and get them to outpatient care by, you know, getting an assessment or I will do this assessment because I actually have the time to do it. You know, it's uh, there's there's actually some solutions there that we do from, uh, in some of our facilities. And so, but yes, the same uh, problems of 
the same social problems of all emergency departments I experience in, in the facilities yeah. I participate in. Well, it's not surprising that, you know, if you have more time to, to take care of problems that you can take care of problems. Right. <laughs> and then you can actually, the more time, I mean, the more time you have, the you can use your extensive training to actually to, to find solutions and, uh, you know. That's the same care, same as primary care, which is why the direct primary care docs talk so much about the added time they have with the patients and how much better they can, how much better care they can provide than they could in the traditional setting. So my last question is totally different, <laughs> and a lot, a lot of what we talked about in this in this um, podcast has been about maintenance certification. Uh, it's a personal passion of mine. Uh, the fact that I think it's a ripoff, and it's uh, it's. It's just detrimental to the to the practice of medicine, increases burnout, causes all kinds of problems and strife within medicine. And uh, and we passed some laws here in Michigan that was quite a victory. And Dr. Meg Edison was on episodes one and I think twenty, and she's the one who spearheaded here in the state. But um, one of the biggest opponents, all the specialties in Michigan eventually took a no position. but the biggest opponents to it were ER physicians. And we found that this is the case in most states, that ER physicians are the most sort of militant in trying to defend the MOC process through their um, their board of, I guess it's the American Board of ER Medicine or something. Um, right. It, do, you know why, uh, do you know why that is? Why they're so intent on continuing the maintenance certification? Is it trying to keep other physicians out of the ER? Or I just don't, I don't understand why... Everyone wants to subject themselves to you know ten thousand dollars every ten year cycle and all these other MOC points, which I'm sure you're doing all the same crazy things for your certification as well. Right, I, I think they just lobby the right people in the emergency uh, in the emergency medicine field. No, okay. um, I, I, I can say that. Uh, no, uh, I can say that. Emergency medicine is kind of centralized around a couple big colleges, you know, American College of Emergency Physicians, American College of uh, or American Academy of Emergency Medicine. Um, and one of them is completely ran by staffing companies and and they're very susceptible to that kind of special interest. And, and, and it's a, you know, you, the MOC process is a, you pat my back, I pat yours and, you know, you're employing people and it's, it, it is the money-making process for whoever's administering it. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, you know, I could, my excuse for my fellow emergency medicine doctors would be that because emergency medicine, you know, it's, it's, it's a youthful, um, it's a youthful field, you know, only 20, 30 years. And the way mm-hmm. it started was grandfathering of family medicine and internal medicine and primary care um, that they're very, um, very proud of the board certification in emergency medicine. They wear, you know, a lot of emergency doctors will that are residency trained wear that as a badge and people will advertise that. And that you could imagine where that continuation of that process um, allows them to continue to distinguish themselves. I hate it. I don't think it's, I I can't stomach, um, you know, getting a CPR, you know, card from the American Heart Association when I do, PR. Yeah. I should. I do CPR all the time. I mean, why? Why am I going to that organization for it? I mean, I should be an instructor. Honestly, I mean, why? This is crazy. Why do I need that? Why is my hospital and my field demanding I have you know ACLS or you know? Uh, now, pals is a different story, and your wife would agree. I'm sure. So, <laughs> yeah, my sort of unofficial 
feel of the of the uh, physician resistance to MOC is probably about ninety to ninety five percent of physicians are not in favor of MOC. Yeah. I mean, I think most physicians are in favor of board certification, where you go through residency, you get training in a specialty, you're a consultant, and you have extra knowledge about whatever it might be, whether it's vitreoretinal surgery or you know anesthesia or emergency medicine. But very few are in favor of or think there's any utility to the the, the main certification process. So is that in ER, do you find that most docs just grumble about it, but they just they just kind of just do it? Yeah, we, we, we have okay. to just do it with, we just have to go with it. And a lot of things what the hospital says, I mean, we yeah. really, we really emergency medicine doctors really have so little power in the, in the, in the hierarchy of, of, of a hospital medicine. And I think that um, often though, but you're seeing more and more fighting the battle and you're seeing the colleges of Ameri- uh, of like ASAP, uh, American college of emergency physician strongly opposing it, you know? And so I, oh, okay. you're starting to see some movement. I don't know. I really don't know why I can't put my finger on why your state, why the emergency physicians there would, would, would oppose, you know, those changes as they're just, you know, so common sense. Um, so that's my, yeah, you know what? It's a squeaky wheel, right? I mean, right. it's, it's entirely possible that the four people who happen to be board examiners or write questions or are in some way affiliated with the, the American board of emergency medicine, because I will say this about all the boards that I can tell uh, the people who are the academics, generally academics, almost always academics, who are running these large uh, boards, not only are they making gazillions of dollars doing this, it, you know, uh, and their livelihood depends on it. Um, and they, so of course they see the utility of it because that's, you know, what they do. Uh, but they, and they represent their, the organizations that where they're, they're, they're professional societies of the different specialties. They tend to be in favor of the MOC, but very few of the actual, the people on the ground are in favor of it. So they're just not they're working. They're not. They're not in these organizations. They're, they don't have time to go to all the meetings and and work their way up in these organizations. And certainly, people who are opposed to it rarely have the the authoritative voice. And so, it's entirely possible. It's just the people who are in the leadership it could be ten people in Michigan, and all the other ER docs think it's crazy. Um, but that was my. That was just. It was just an unusual thing that I noticed in Michigan. But again, it's probably just just the individuals who happen to be sort of running things here in Michigan. Well. I don't want to take any more of your time. I really appreciate you uh, sp- spending this, this time with me talking about your your ER hospital ventures. So if people want to find out more, I know they can go to o- OKER Hospital. I love Oklahoma that you can put OK in everything. So OKERHospital.com. If people want to contact you about stuff, is it best to just – we can give your email address out, right? Because I think it was in that other video. It's crice at OKERHospital.com, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm ha- Are you on Twitter or Facebook or anything? No, I, I am not. And uh, so email would be the best. And um, I just, um, you know, busy with family and uh, have, have always chosen not to participate in those mediums. Uh, but I'm finding more and more <laughs> reason to lately. I'll put it that way. So uh, I'm going to have to, I might change uh, once again go to the evil side uh, pretty soon <laughs> and, and get a Twitter account it has been it's an interesting thing we and we've discussed this in a previous episode about social media and physicians because there was for a long time there wasn't much presence by physicians outside of the dr. Oz's in the world uh, on social media and I, I think it's a I think we sort of are we're selling ourselves short I think we have a lot to provide to the conversation and our in our absence is uh, 
it causes some problems. It's detrimental. I think it's probably useful for us to be out there and seen as human and uh, to interact. But it's tricky, right? You got to know how to do it and all this. It's another so. language I don't understand yet. So no, no, actually, I, I do spend a lot of time on it through a professional standpoint. I, I've had to understand it because it's such a huge part of business, uh, you know, the marketing, the digital marketing. So almost every facility I have, have has very strong presence on digital marketing, whether it be Twitter or Facebook. And so I've learned how to, to localize ads and all these other things I've never, you know, and, and really down into the nitty gritty of it, but I, I, I just always refrain from it personally. But uh, as I advocate more for physician ownership, I, I think that that would be the quickest medium to do it. And uh, so maybe I'll, I'll talk to you next time we talk, I'll, I'll have a change to social media presence. <laughs> well, perfect. So make sure you send all your cat videos to Dr. Rice. And so <laughs> email. he's gonna get back on the by email. Right. <laughs> So thanks again. Have a great evening. Thank you, Eric. Have a good one. <laughs> thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash The Paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.